0: Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: Hello, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi,
0: this is Desi Jadikan. We
1: have a lot of patrons that joined since the last time we recorded, so I'm going to read a portion of those as to not s- spend too much time on that. And then the next, na- <laughs> and the following week, we'll get to you, we'll get to you all, we'll get to you all. We it, just don't
0: want to bog it down with a long, yeah, uh, reading of names. We know, yeah, okay,
1: so. Let's give a shout out to these people who subscribe to our Patreon, patreon.com slash Hollywood scene. We have, oh gosh, this is Irish. <laughs> I can't, I, I don't know. Okay. Hold on. Google says the correct pronunciation is Shannon. Okay. Thank you so much. We also have Rory, Mary, Rebecca, Danny, Rachel, Alana, Katie, Emily, Nicole, Maria, Lot, Natalie, Patricia, Anna, Jessel, Rachel, Timmy, Courtney, Kristen, Farida, Jody, Neen, Brittany, Rhea, Jubika, Melly Mel, Miss V, and I'm going to stop there and we'll read the rest next week but thank you all so much for subscribing to our Patreon really helps the show and there's a ton of bonus content there so you're not just doing it for nothing
0: yeah there's extra stuff there's i ex- just loaded 3 spotify live recordings and we also loaded our america next america's next top model like bonus uh, stuff that didn't go into the main, two main episodes.
1: Yeah, we did an extra bonus America's Next Top Model episode for Patreon only. It's at the ten dollar tier. We also have a five dollar tier where there's a ton of content as well. So check it out. And yes, we are back for those. A lot of some people, not a lot of people, because we we did a few like messages go We did a pay, we did a mass message to our patrons. But then we did a couple of Instagram stories as well. And then I did a personal Instagram story. I had COVID. I don't have COVID anymore. But that's why we were off for almost two weeks. I was very sick. Yes. I'm not sick anymore.
0: And I did not get COVID. And Desi did not get
1: COVID. It was just me. But we're not sick anymore. I'm not sick anymore.
0: That was uh, good timing for me not to get sick. Cause Do you got, know what I'm saying? Yeah. Because it would just happen to be you were away when you got sick, and we kind of knew something was up, and so we didn't get together initially until you were testing. Right. Because otherwise, I would have probably been with you.
1: Yeah. Um, anyway, we'll go into it more on the after show. Yeah, which is also
0: a Patreon
1: That's a, pa- that's uh, a Patreon. That's a $5. We get a little more personal there. Okay. Some people so, find it very entertaining.
0: Um, okay. So... During the America's Next Top Model episodes, I think it was the second one, we mentioned that Tyra was in a video for George Michael. It was the Too Funky video. We couldn't uh, come up with the title during the show. And I said we should do a George Michael episode sometime. Well, when I was searching for an episode for the beginning of June – uh, I was like, oh, maybe I should do a Pride Month episode. I had another person in mind and I couldn't find a book. And then I was like, oh, well, why don't I do George Michael? So that's what we are doing. As I was researching uh, George Michael, as I, I have some books I'll recommend, I'll tell you about at the end of this. Um, I saw that there's an uncut version of the documentary he produced before his death. That's being released next week on the 22nd. Oh, wow. Isn't that wild? Wow. So that I found that out after. I was bummed, though, because I was like, oh, I wish it was out now so I could watch it. <laughs> now, this was a documentary that came out A while ago, but this is the uncut version. So I couldn't even watch the old version because they basically scrubbed it from the internet. Really? Uh, Yeah, because when I went to um, Amazon, it was like not available. So I think they took it down, uh, and you know, because this new one's coming out. So I'm I am super excited to watch it. Hopefully, it's streaming. Unfortunately, um, like I said, I didn't get to watch that. But there are tons of great interviews and clips online that I did watch. There's a great 60 Minutes with Andrew Ridgely. Um, There's a ton of interviews with George Michael, who is hilarious. Yeah.
1: He's funny. He was really funny.
0: And, you know, Hugh Grant gets a lot of credit for that interview he did with Jay Leno after getting busted with Devine Brown. Yeah. Uh, And George Michael. And he should. And he should. Yeah, But George Michael has an even funnier one. Uh, on a UK show <laughs> after he got r- arrested in LA. Um, so yeah, you, you got to look for them. They're, they're all really great. Uh, I also used some books, including George Michael, the biography by Rob Jovanovich and wham, George Michael and me by Andrew Ridgely. He has a memoir. They're both uh, very good, especially the Andrew Ridgely one. Uh, he's a great guy. He, it's a lot more personal. It's a lot more personal, uh, and I just, I really like him. I think he's cool. So this will be two parts, uh, because there's a lot of stuff. The second part will focus more on his legal issues, but part one I felt was important to go into his background to understand who he was, and I think it will give greater meaning uh, for what he went through, his struggles to find himself and feel comfortable with who he was, with his celebrity. Uh, and his sexuality later uh, in, in the second half. We'll get more into that. And obviously, both of us are huge George Michael stands. I have ex- actually written down. By the way, I'm a huge fan. <laughs> That's my next line. <laughs> and I literally have been my whole life. Like, yeah, he has been in my life from the beginning. Full disclosure: When I first saw a Wham video, which I think was "Wake Me Up Before I we go, before, you go before, go. go," before you go go. <laughs> I had a crush on Andrew. He was like, I was like into him more oh. than George. Cause that's my type. He's kind of dark, uh, dark haired. I mean like that type. Uh, and like I said before, I think he is really cool. So that's cool as well. So let's get into George's story. Uh, in 1953, Kyrakos Paneatu, a Greek Cypriot immigrant came to London to start a new life. He almost immediately took on the nickname Jack. He worked hard all day in restaurants with dreams of opening his own one day. At night, he played hard, going out dancing late into the night. It was at a dance in 1957. He met a UK girl named Leslie Harrison, and Jack proposed soon after, despite Leslie's father being not into the idea. So part of that was discrimination. Uh, Greek immigrants at the time were Really discriminated in the UK. Uh, I guess maybe they had an influx of these people. i um, sorry, these people, Greek immigrants coming in. Uh, it was very common then to see signs that said no blacks, no Irish, no Greeks. Oh, wow. Isn't that wild? Now, the young couple struggled to make ends meet, and things only got tighter when they had their first daughter in 1959. Jack worked even harder and eventually got a better paying position. Two years later, they had another daughter named Melanie, and soon after that, their final child, a son, was born. They named him Yorgos, and he came into the world on uh, June 25th, 1963. Now, George, George would later say, my name is Yorgos Kyriakos Paneotto. To the outside world, I am and always will be known as something else, but that is not my name. The day of Yorgos' birth was one of extreme joy and extreme tragedy. Leslie's brother, who had always thought that he was gay, took his own life. He was found with his head in an oven. And he had wanted to do this for a while, but did not want to spoil his sister's pregnancy, so he waited until she gave birth to do it. That's George that was George's uncle? Yes, his sister's brother. That's so sad. Yeah. Now he didn't George didn't find out about this until later in life, and obviously it resonated with him. Uh, Because his own situation, as far as hiding his sexuality for so long. Uh, And it made him sad. Uh, He felt like his uncle, if only had been able to hold on long enough, maybe he would have seen that there would be some improvements in gay rights. That would eventually come along, but it may have been more than that because his mother's side of the family had a history of depression and suicidal ideation. Shortly after the tragedy of her brother, Leslie found the body of her father who had taken his own life as well (gasps) in a similar uh, circumstance. So... Yorgos did speak about how he felt um, his mom always knew he was gay. And despite her more liberal beliefs, she tried to toughen him up, according to him, make a, a boy slash man out of him. And he speculates it was because of what she saw happen to her brother. So the family eventually upgraded to a house. And that means that Yorgos's dad had to work even harder and maintain more hours at work to pay for this modest upgrade. Um, His mother, meanwhile, exhausted herself, keeping the house spotless, like she was fanatical about getting the house together. And Yorgos was very close to his mother and two sisters. His father pretty much slept when he was home. That's how much he worked. But he was eventually able to open his own restaurant just 15 years after coming to England. Now, we will get into his restaurant, so don't worry about it. (laughs) Hell yeah. When Yorgos was seven, the family moved near this restaurant, and he also began his first foray into music with violin lessons. He also got a tape recorder around around this time, which really got his creative juices flowing. He would record himself singing along to songs. he would record like radio shows and jingles and ads. Do you remember doing uh, that? I, <laughs> I was just going to say that here here here's a budding
1: podcaster. yeah, I had my little my first Sony. <laughs> tape deck with attached microphone in very bright primary colors and I would walk around the house talking into the microphone and then I'd put the microphone up to the TV and record the commercials.
0: I mean, I can't even explain to people born after maybe 1995 what it was like to be able to record yourself. Like... (laughs) truly the most or like record things to re-listen to later it was the best I also was obsessed with microphones like uh I think we've mentioned that before but it was like to record like I remember recording like the top 40 like the Casey Kasem countdown I would just record that like and then I'd be like I have all those songs now like it was just like the coolest thing ever but to record yourself was just Or to make your own like shows and stuff. It was just. That's what I did. I made my own little podcast before it was called a podcast.
1: I would record myself talking. I would interview my brother. Yeah. Uh, We'd had this tape and then I would also record MTV from the microphone. I'd stick it up to the TV. It was
0: the most fun ever. Uh, So yeah, I love that detail. He eventually drops the violin and really wants to start focusing on singing. He hated the music his dad played, which was mostly traditional Greek music, but one day he found a turntable and some of his dad's old records, which included The Supremes and Tom Jones. He listened to these over and over again, and his mom also allowed him to watch The Michael Parkinson Show, which was a talk show um, that was popular, and this is the one I saw that he is on much later in life, giving a really funny interview. But we'll talk about that in part two. Now his dad was pretty unsupportive of his son singing, telling him he wasn't good and he had no talent for music. George's, I'm sorry, Jorgis didn't believe it. He also became a huge fan of Elton John around this time. That was like the big artist of the day. 1974 was a big year for him. He got to see Elton Live, which was like a huge inspiration to him. And his family would move once again to Radlett, where he attended started attending the Bushy Mead School. The Bushy Mead School? Yeah. A really posh little private school. I love I <laughs> we've
1: said it before. I love British names of shit. Yeah. Totally.
0: <laughs> so I know, and believe me, this is correct. This is not me making a mistake. <laughs> the Bushy Mead school. Fucking excellent. Uh, so the summer before attending Bushy Meads. Yorgos spent a lot of time at his dad's restaurant and he ate a lot of food there. So he gained a little weight that summer. uh, And that is something he would be self-conscious of his whole life. This restaurant, by the way, is called Mr. Jack's restaurant. It is a local institution and it is still there, although not owned by George, George, um, George Michael's father. It serves Mediterranean food, obviously, but it's also a lot of steaks and chops. Like, it's that type of place. I wanna go. It's meat heavy. They've got fr- chips, fries, <laughs> you name it. So, Yorgos was alone that summer, spending time at the restaurant and just comfort eating. Who can blame him?
1: Can I just say, I had no idea that George Michael was Cypriot.
0: Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. I mean, he's half. My stepmom is Cypriot. Oh. Um, Yeah. So in September 9th of, uh, I'm sorry, on September 9th, 1975, Yorgos arrives at the Bushy Mead School. According to him, he is the chubby kid with glasses. He's really shy. And everyone basically just stares at him when he enters the classroom. I mean, being the new kid sucks, especially if you feel insecure. Uh, His teacher asked if anyone would volunteer to take him under their wing and show him the ropes. Most avoided eye contact with him, but one boy cheerfully raised his hand saying, I will miss. And that boy was Andrew Richley. Oh, <gasps> so during recess, Andrew was dominating a game of King of the Wall at some point. <laughs> it's like, I think it's like, um where you try to push someone off the wall. It's like one of those games. Classic British schoolyard game. King of the Wall. You know, Game of Thrones. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like King of the North. King of the North. King of the North. You remember when Bran got pushed out of the building? That's how you become King of the (laughs) Wall. That's how you do it. Now, at some point, his shy sidekick kind of got into it, joined in and toppled Andrew. And that was the beginning of their lifelong friendship. I can't believe they met when they were that young. Yes, They met in like junior high basically. I'm going to cry. I know. So Andrew quickly revealed to jo- Yorgo's his two goals in life: to become a pro footballer and if that didn't work out, he was going to become a pop star. So <laughs> Andrew is very confident. Andrew wants to be a pop star or yeah, a footballer. Those are his two career goals. Uh so he's the perfect companion for young Yorgo's who like I said before is incredibly insecure. But the area he was confident in was music, so that was something they could talk about endlessly and really bonded over. Little do they know at the time how life-changing this meeting would be for both of them personally and professionally. Now, Yorgos had no interest in becoming rich. He really just wanted to be famous. He wanted the attention he didn't get from his dad, and he wanted to banish his low self-esteem once and for all. And in his mind, he had to become famous and all his problems (laughs) would be solved. Uh, here's a quote from George. As a boy, my biggest fear was that my huge ambition would stay just out of reach of the child I saw in the mirror, which is really sad. <laughs> so after, you know, I, as I mentioned, he's this shy wallflower at school that no one notices. Andrew is like the exact opposite in every way. He's outgoing. He's cocky. He's cool. He's popular. Like, they're just like the perfect match uh, as far as like having what the other lacks, Right. He's also really cute. Andrew is very uh, handsome. I mean, I think George Michael is also handsome, but he just didn't feel it then. He was, you know, he didn't find himself yet. According to Yorgos, Andy didn't spend a lot of time looking in the mirror because he just knew he was gorgeous and he didn't have to look. (laughs) Uh, So he didn't need proof. The only issue uh, Andrew had, he had a similar thing to uh, Yorgos, is that his dad was Egyptian, So he has like a darker complexion. Like you might've thought he was just tan because Wham was very tan at some point, but that's actually his, he's actually more darker complexioned. So the kids used to tease him about, about that. They would call him Packy, (gasps) uh, which is obviously a a racial slur. Um, But unlike Yorgos, Andrew just like, was like, whatever. He was like, he had this ability to just brush this uh, teasing off and that obviously like makes people like you more, sadly, right? Because right. they're like, well, we're not going to do that anymore. Because they saw it didn't get to him. Yes. Whereas your ghost, everyone loved to taunt him, and all the kids called him Yogurt. God, kids are such assholes. Yes. But that led to Andrew calling him Yog, which became a loving nickname. So right. he kind of turned yogurt. it into yogurt yogurt it's like it's not even clever but no. it's just so mean <laughs> like do you know what i mean like yeah. it sounds funny like who cares if someone calls you yogurt but for him it was just like this devastating insult Ugh. like because it was mean my friends lovingly called me ranch <laughs> well I, that makes sense <laughs> my my brother still calls me ranch uh, so the only person not fond of andrew jack and leslie Uh, They did not like him. They thought he was arrogant. They didn't think he took school seriously. And he was a little too confident for their (laughs) taste. So when football seemed like it wasn't a viable career option for Andrew, he moved right on to pop star. (laughs) Yorgos had recently got a drum set. So that summer break, the duo got out the tape recorder and started writing and recording songs. Yorgos started buying into Andrew's belief that they could be pop stars. Yorgos became enamored with the band Queen at the time, in particular, the showman, lead singer Freddie Mercury. Eventually, Jack and Leslie do come to accept Andrew when they see that their son is coming out of his shell more, and Andrew is a very helpful presence in his life. Now, Andrew had an over-the-top fashion sense, something he said he got away with because they were at a poof school. (laughs) Yorgos, however, had a very dorky style. He was not stylish at all. The summer of seventy six, his sisters gave him a makeover. He got contact lenses, and they shaved his unibrow. Oh, he also had a bushy. He has like a really naturally bushy, permy like hair. Yeah, Uh, he's got a very like curly uh, hair hair, hair hairstyle. Really? So they yeah. So they trimmed that down to make it a little more manageable. The boys both became obsessed with Saturday Night Fever. They loved the soundtrack and the movie, and they began to work on dance routines for their movie, their uh, music. Obviously, Andrew is a natural, and poor, poor Yorgos struggles. I don't really? Know why. I just relate so much to him. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you want to do it, but you're a little clumsy, yeah. or like whatever, and then you have this friend who's just good at everything. He, he's on it. He's on it. So now, of course, Yorgos' dad wants him to, you know, focus on his studies and his grades. He, Yorgos has different ideas. He and another friend named David Mortimer begin skipping school every Friday, going into London and busking at the tube station. Busking? Yeah, like singing in for money. Oh, oh, okay. Um, they play popular songs by Elton John and Queen, as well as some originals. Now, despite this, he still manages to do pretty well in school. He stays on for his A-levels at Bushy Mead. I, don't, I think that's kind of like, in between high school and college. I'm not 100% sure. I'm going to start calling this school mushy peas. <laughs> <laughs> mushy peas. Yeah. Andrew decides to take his pursue his A-levels at a more adult environment at a college. So I don't know how the the system works there, but whatever. They're like in their teens. So... And by adult environment, I mean, Andrew is partying. He starts doing a lot of LSD. So he's just in a more adult, adult environment. By 1979, Andrew is tired of partying, and he wants to get back into the music thing with Yorgos. Uh, the popular music in the UK at the time is ska with bands like Madness. The specials. Yeah. So that becomes their focus. They write a song called Rude Boy. Stop it. <laughs> Stop it. Yes. They were a two-tone ska band. Yes. There's, I have a lot of good pictures from Andrew's book that I'll give you oh, so you can post them on. Uh, as if I couldn't love these men <laughs> anymore. There are some early pictures of them trying to find their style that is just, like, your, George is, like, in this white linen suit that's just <laughs> not ill-fitting. It's just so funny. So they also try to make a ska version of Beethoven's Furlies, which I want to hear, to be I- honest. <laughs> Um, The band has a rotating cast of musicians, including David Mortimer, who now goes by David Austin. And they call themselves The Executive. (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) Now, Yorgos had recently had a very disappointing audition with a band called The Quiffs. (laughs) Not The Queefs. The (laughs) Queefs. The Queefs. And he was basically rejected because of his look, which devastated him. Uh, but he was ready to try again. So he did join up with um, Andrew and the executive. Once he was performing with them, his cons- his confidence was boosted once again. And the band kind of went nowhere, but they did have some successful gigs. And George got more experience uh, performing. Now, he begins working at his dad's restaurant while DJing on the weekends. Andrew is still at college. And they kind of drift apart during this period. Yorgos hated DJing and would develop his habit of composing songs in his head while traveling um, on his commute to work. It was on one of these bus rides that he came up, up with what he felt was a hit song. Ridgely was in London at the time, and Yorgos went to visit him, excited to tell him about this new song. Andrew happened to have... Um, a guitar chord progression that he had been working on and they fit together perfectly. They began thinking of lyrics. um, The basis of which was from a period when Yorgos was dating two girls in school and neither one of them knew about the other. His sister, Melanie called this new tune by the duo tuneless whisper, (laughs) (laughs) but it was careless whisper, which would one day be the duo's biggest hit. Wow. So he, they, that song is from when they were teenagers The duo recorded a demo of Careless Whisper, and Yorgos played it at his next DJ gig. He was amazed to see the dance floor fill, and that was the moment he knew he was a songwriter. Wow. So Andrew and Yorgos felt like time was running out to make a go of it in music. Yorgos began writing more songs, and not only was this a self-imposed pressure on his part, his dad had basically told him he had six months to get signed to, to a deal or he was done with music. I mean, that's what the dad's opinion was, right? (laughs) So now it's 1982. Andrew and Yorgos are in London, and they're really into this London club scene. It's a lot of uh, middle-class kids living on the dull. This is a thing in the early 80s. I'll get a little into that in a little bit. Um, It's also hip-hop has come to the UK. Right. So it's like Grandmaster Flash. That stuff is very popular in the UK clubs at the moment. And they began playing around with rap for one of their own songs. Uh, One phrase that they keep playing around with and singing over um, rap tracks that are playing in the clubs is wham, bam, I'm the man. That starts out as a joke that kind of stuck. They changed it slightly uh, and they added lyrics of how fun it was to be on unemployment and not work. (laughs) (laughs) So they also liked the word wham. Ridgely explained that they were looking for something that captured the essence of what set them apart, their energy, their friendship, uh, and Wham! was snappy, immediate, fun, and boisterous, so they really loved it. A British graphic design studio, Styro, Silo Rouge, was credited with adding the exclamation I'm ex- sorry, exclamation mark, <laughs> shut up, to the name of the band <laughs> at some point. So the Wham! rap became kind of their theme song once they took that on as their name. They recorded a demo. Do you know the Wham! Rap? <laughs>
1: do, do you want to recite it, Desi?
0: Wham! Bam! I am man. <laughs> Right? <laughs> Look, it's not. It's a very slow-paced rap. <laughs> All of the UK kids were able to sing along with it very easily. I'm sure uh, you know that song, right? Yeah. Come on. So they recorded a demo it of it and proceeded to get rejected by every label they played played it for. <laughs> It's a silly song. Andrew had one more place to take it. It was a music connection he made from the executive days. This guy's name was Mark Dean. He was a noob in the industry, but a rising star. He had recently signed um, uh, bands like ABC, Soft Cell, who uh, had a hit at the time, "Tainted Love," The Human League, etc. So he's definitely like you know on his way up. He said that he wanted to sign them, but he wanted to hear a better uh, demo first. So they went and made a better demo. Um, He had a new label at this point. This guy was called Inner Vision. So Wham! would be the band he launched his label with if this demo was a success. So they made the demo and they did the, the Wham! rap. They did Careless Whisper. And Yorgos was blown away hearing his songs with professional backing bands. Like he had never heard a professional recording of his music and Mark was also aware that they were actually kind of good and he pushed them to sign ASAP. He gave them 500 pounds each, which was set against future earnings. So this deal is terrible. Yeah. They get a terrible deal. They were obligated to produce five albums in five years. And if they didn't do that, it was like 10 solo. I mean, it was crazy. Right. Bad deal. So Yorgos, like I said before, didn't care about money, though. He just wanted to be famous. So that was great for him. He celebrated his uh, victory by using his signing money to get his ear pierced. Um, The most important thing was that he beat his dad's deadline, too. So that was another thing. We're like, just sign. They had no other offers. Now, this being pre-internet, pre-MySpace, etc., They had to build their following the hard way. But like like, you said, pre-MySpace. Pre-MySpace. MySpace MySpace was big for a while. It was very big for music too. For new music, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's not big now, but for a while, that was where you would, all those small bands would just like put it up. Now... So they would play at all the clubs. They would hand out their free demos. In June of 82, they pressed their first single, the Wham Rap, Enjoy What You Do. <laughs> <laughs> Is that in the parentheses? Yeah, it's in parentheses. He uh, didn't like seeing his name on the record. He saw G. Panos, and he's like, that's not a star. And he simplified it to George Michael during uh, at that moment. That's when he uh, changed his name. So uh, he also, with this name change, he also created a character This was no longer the awkward, insecure teen Yorgos. This was a self-assured pop star, George Michael. According to Andrew, this name and persona gave him a kind of psychological armor that protected the more sensitive side that he had. In his 1990 autobiography, Bear, um, George wrote that he created a man in the image of a great friend, a man that would... Uh, that the world could love someone who could realize his dreams and make him a star. The friend he based his new persona on is believed to be Andrew. So he like based his persona on his best friend. It's really sweet friendship. Yeah. Like it does bring a tear to my eye when I was writing some of these. So now just a word about the time. As I mentioned, the unemployment rate is super high. Uh, 2.5 million people were unemployed at this time in, uh, London, or maybe it was, uh, England. Um, Thatcher is the prime minister at the time. So if you know anything about that, she is the head of the conservative party. So the conservatives are in charge and they're really disgusted with, um, the high unemployment rates. They think all these people are bums. It's that kind of vibe. And all of a sudden wham drops their first single, the wham rap. And it's literally like, <laughs> this is fun as hell. <laughs> <laughs> We're unemployed. We're living on the dole. You know what? You might as well have fun with it. So, uh, I mean, it's almost borderline punk rock. Yeah. Even though it's it couldn't be more pop, like poppy, right, frothy, right. like whatever. It's, uh, yeah, they're promoting this hedonistic lifestyle Um, You live a carefree life without work or commitment. What's wrong with that? It's part parody, part social commentary. And it briefly earned Wham! a reputation as a dance protest group. (laughs) Oh, my God. Uh, Which is really funny. So, yeah, I mean, future Pet Shop Boy, Neil Tennant, gave it a great review. I think he was a music writer before he went on to the Pet Shop Boys. And he said it was fun. It was a hard, hot, and witty rap. Um, So it got some exposure, but was not a huge hit. Their next single was called Young Guns, and this one took off uh, more, and it was really unexpected. The record company didn't even press enough copies. It cracked the top um, 100, but more importantly, it got them some TV exposure, including a spot on Top of the Pops when another group dropped out and Wham! was a last-minute replacement. Then they had a huge hit on their hand. And shortly after that, George was asked for his first autograph. He was recognized on the street, which was like a big thing for him. Young Guns eventually hits number three on the chart. And, you know, Wham is really a part of this group of bands right now, like Gugu, Culture Club, Duran Duran. So it's like this type of music that's they're just like, it's good timing for them because yeah. that's sort of what's hot. These cute boys. Right. Doing prop, pop music. That's good. Um, So they re-released the Wham Wrap and that quickly shot up the charts. They also developed one of their signature looks, blue jeans, white t-shirt, and black leather jackets. They also had two women who were longtime friends join them as backup dancers. And these women were named Shirley and Pepsi. Pepsi. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Great. That was her nickname. So they also had a uniform. They wore black trouser suits. Um, But very quickly, George was sort of up front and Andrew was back with the girls. Um, so they both agreed at that point that going for the, forward, rather than pretend Andrew was an active participant in the songwriting and creative direction of the band, George would write all the songs and Andrew would just perform and enjoy himself. He wanted, this is, Andrew was in on this. Like, he's like, really? that's fine with me. Wow. Like, and I honestly, I'm like, I respect him so much. Cause he was kind of like, great. I'm just, I'm happy to be along for the ride. <laughs> like, wow. Yeah. So, I mean, he got dunked on a lot. He did. Uh, At the time. I I mean, people, and not even just at
1: the time, like in modern history, people, oh, whatever happened to Andrew Ridgely? Right.
0: Right. So this was their agreement from the get-go. That's wild. His uh, first totally solo song that he wrote without any input from Andrew would be Bad Boys. This was also a hit. Um, It was only stopped from being number one by the police's Every Breath You Take, which was number one for like a hundred years or something. Uh, (laughs) They were back on top of the pops. And this is how you can tell this book was written in 2007, because they were introduced by, quote from the book, National Treasure Jimmy Savo. No. (laughs) Yes. No. Yes. I was like, "Uh." oh. I was like, okay. I had to check the date. I was like, when was this written? (laughs) So they were (laughs) They were soon back in the studio recording songs for the band's debut album that would be called Fantastic. Great name. (laughs) In addition to the songs already mentioned, they had another one of their big hits on the album, Club Tropicana. The album was received uh, pretty well. It was clearly a fun and fluffy album, but catchy. The most negative review was in Rolling Stone, which liked the album, but thought George's vocals needed improvement. The album shot to number one on the charts. Uh, Club Tropicana was like the song of the summer. And Wham! changed their style for the video. In this one, they flaunted their tan bods and their bright white teeth, (laughs) embracing (laughs) the summery vibe of the song. They filmed this video in Ibiza, ibiza yeah uh, george. right desi say george right. is in a speedo in the video and andrew just comes floating by on the float <coughs> in the pool drinking his tropical drink he's like i don't do anything i'm just here for the ride <laughs> <laughs> um wham were big time pop stars and with that they side with No management company who would produce their tours and they also signed a huge endorsement for them with fila so uh, this began a battle with Wham! For, over Wham! With inner Intervision Records, the shit really hit the fan when the label released "Fantastic" remixed without the band's permission, and things just kept getting worse with this label. In 1984, Frankie goes to Hollywood made a huge spa- splash with "Relax," <laughs> <laughs> a controversial song. <laughs> this knocked Wham out of the number one spot. And they really, at this point, were over Intervision. So they weren't doing jack shit. They were—they uh, had nothing on the horizon. Wham was basically sidelined sideline for the early part of the year, and they were struggling to get out of their contract with Intervision. But 1984 would eventually belong to one band, and that band was Wham. uh, So this guy, Mark, the the head of this label, was in enormous debt. At some point, he had no choice but to basically give them to Epic in exchange for Epic paying off some of his loans. So once Wham! is over on Epic, they immediately began writing again. And Andrew marveled at George and his ability to find inspiration anywhere. Once while watching a soccer game, Andrew said George screamed like almost like a Eureka ran upstairs to write, and when he finally emerged from the room, he showed Andrew Last Christmas. Oh so he my just God. came up with it and ran upstairs and wrote it and came down. While watching football? Yes. So the first two songs they would record with Ep- Epic were Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go and Careless Whisper, the only holdover from their early stuff that had not been uh, recorded yet or that they still wanted to. Now, as you all know, this is peak MTV, like yeah. early MTV. Every song has to have a video and Epic gave them a huge budget for Care- for Careless Whisper, $30,000. So, that was a lot of money back then. Yeah. Now, one of his first diva moments occurs on the Careless Whisper set. George's great hair got super frizzy in the Florida humidity. Oh. <laughs> this album is is I'm sorry, this video was was uh, recorded in Florida. Have you seen the video? Careless Whisper? Yeah. I mean, I don't, you might not remember it. I don't remember it. Look, there's seaplanes in it. <laughs> They're in a tropical location. Affairs happen. There's boats. Like, it looks like a, it looks like a rap video from the early 2000s because there's like the yachts in the Miami yeah. surf. Um, so his sister happened to be with him. She gave him a haircut. They had to reshoot all the scenes they had already recorded because he had short hair now. So it added $17,000 to the cost of the video. Now, the next video they had to film suffered because of this. Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go had to be shot on a shoestring budget because of this. (laughs) I can tell. Now, if you know this video, as Rachel said, this should not be surprising. Um, George would later say that if you saw him prancing around in short shorts and gloves in that video and didn't realize he was gay, that's on you. (laughs) These shorts are very short. The the inseam is like one inch. Yeah. It's crazy. So I told Rachel, I was like, we, we're going to do some Patreon episodes where we review videos uh, of this period because I was literally howling yeah. over each one that I watched. It's a ridiculous video. That video is ridiculous, but all of them are, are funny. But yeah, Wake Me Up Before You Go Go was just like, I I was losing it. He is putting his entire, <laughs> like he is giving it his all to make up for the lack of a budget. Both of them yes, are. The dancing. It's and it's very neon. It's There's very, even a black light. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it has all the 80s tropes. The other hilarious thing is the Choose Life t shirt. Right. Which is like, you couldn't even wear that now without <laughs> seeming like you were like anti abortion or something. Like, right. Like, what does that even mean? I think it meant like, like, have fun, live. Right. But now but it's. But now it has a totally different meaning. Yeah. I think. N- now you'd be like, ugh, gross. Um, so. If you're curious about the origins of the song title, the title came after George was like dunking on Andrew. He saw a note that Andrew wrote to his parents. He mistakenly wrote, wake me up, up. And then to keep it going as if he meant it, he said, before you go, go. <laughs> <laughs> these two have like a, they're like, they're like a door. They're dorky. Like yeah. their sense of humor is definitely dorky, but it's cute. Uh, and I love, I like love their friendship. So, I mean, this song is pure pop confection. George says he thinks it's w- so well remembered because it's so stupid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he also said that although he thinks the video is perfect, it also makes him cringe. I mean, but that's part of the joy of this
1: song is it's one of the dumbest songs of all time, which it makes, truly is. But, it's, <laughs> but in its stupidity, it's perfect.
0: Yeah, it's weird. It's like a. Per- it's also like, what is the jitterbug? Why is the jitterbug? That's, 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 that's the part of the song that's so baffling because it's a jitterbug. It's literally like, and there's there's no jitterbugging in the video. No. Like, it's never brought up again. No. <laughs> it just makes no sense. Like, it's <laughs> hilarious though. So. The song reached number one, of course. Uh, The Choose Life shirts um, became a fashion must-have for teens. They all wanted those Choose Life shirts. Um, So (laughs) with all his success, however, George was encountering a new frustration. He wasn't being taken seriously. Now, who can I mean, he kind of admits like he only has himself to blame in some regards. (laughs) Because of this ridiculous video. Yes. But part of that was the fact that They both also openly admitted that they wanted to be big stars and sell a lot of records. And you're not supposed to pretend you're you're not supposed to say that you're supposed to pretend you're too cool to care about those things when you're a musician. It's about the art. Yeah. So in George's mind, you know, he deserved respect at the age of 21. He's only 21 now. He has written six top 10 singles and one number one. And he deserves some respect. I mean, regardless of how you feel about pop music, I personally love pop music.
1: That is no small feat. You do have to have some... You have to have a level of artistry to make a hit song.
0: Yes. And to make a catchy song like an earworm right. is difficult. Like it, if it's easy, all of us would be doing it and cashing in. Like. Which is why I will always come down. Uh, I'm as a huge
1: Mariah Carey stan. I will always school somebody because not only does she write her music and lyrics, but that is a woman who has produced hit after hit after hit after hit for 30 years. That yeah. is not easy to do. It is not.
0: So the revamped careless whisper would um, change that a bit. It be, it was an adult, more adult song. It's adult music with one of the most famous sax solos of all time. I mean, anyone who <laughs> plays the saxophone has been asked if they can play Absolutely. "Careless Whisper." And ironically, like I mentioned earlier, this was a song he wrote as a teenager. Yeah. So it became his most adult song at that time. It was definitely a mixed bag for George, since he part of him was like, "I I just wrote this. Like it was it was nothing to me." But it also proved that he was so talented, he didn't have to even work at things. They just happened. Like, he was just a natural songwriter. So when it was released in August of 1984, it knocked Frankie Goes to Hollywood off the top of the charts and spent 17 weeks at number one. Church. (laughs) Just leave me alone. It's been a few weeks. I'm, I'm not used to speaking. <laughs> I had to take the brunt and do the first show back. <laughs> um, And this gave Epic their first million-selling single. It also reached number one in the States, which was a big deal for him. He appeared on top of the Pops to perform it, looking tanned and gorgeous. According to him, the epitome of Greek masculinity. I'm sure his parents were very proud. <laughs> he was also busy writing more material for their second album, which would be called Make It Big. Michael would also produce Make It Big and this was the album he's like, I want to conquer America with this album. Now George was also these these were, these singles were released but the album hadn't come out yet. Right? Um, So George is also experiencing the ugly side of fame at this point. He became a regular in the UK tabloids, most notably being mocked for his Princess Diana haircut. (laughs)
1: Now, if you remember that's, <laughs> at some point that, that they did have the same haircut <laughs> they did and you have famously said that you did not like that
0: hairstyle on princess diana no. either and i that's probably why i had a crush on andrew because he had a you know he has a dark he's his hair is dark it's yeah. he bleaches it blonde which is fine uh but he also had that same hairstyle as her I can't even describe it. You know what I'm talking about. I know what you're talking (laughs) about. So he got mocked in the press about this Princess Diana haircut. He kind of laughed about it also later in life, at least, saying sometimes like it was him and Princess Diana and the tabloids every day. And sometimes he's like, I think sometimes they mixed us up and we're confused (laughs) who they were talking about. Um, They were also the band was also mocked on a popular puppet show at the time. They had puppet versions of lamb that were just huge white pants and a mouthful of huge white teeth. (laughs) So, obviously, the band is laughing all the way to the bank. Their next single is Freedom. This is also a huge hit. I love that song. The original Freedom. Yeah. So, this was uh, the lead single from the upcoming album, Make It Big, which was released in November of 84. This album features my favorite Wham song of all time, Everything Everything She she wants. Wants.
1: The best song. It is my favorite Wham song, too. One of the greatest pop songs ever. It's still... It's still uh, it, good. It, it, like, gets it gets me. It gets me. I was listening me. to
0: it a lot and I was laughing because I was like, this bitch, <laughs> she owned, she had George Michael by the balls. It's like, <laughs> I.
1: It's one of my dream drag performance songs. I, I want to do a drag performance to everything she wants. It's
0: so good. It's uh, amazing. So they did make it big in America. Chris Connolly of Rolling Stone at the time called it a flawless pop album and Wham! was for sure... guilty pleasure for a lot of people and they obviously had their other fans but people liked them like they were good so george michael is fucking talented his singing had improved drastically from his earlier efforts not that he was ever bad but he really got good next up was a world tour um, and andrew's carousing regularly began making the tabloids george's romantic life was pretty private which is an incredible feat considering how big they were and he he really faced adoring fans and crowds night after night after night and that began to wear on him because he started once again, feeling like he was just an object of desire. I mean, he's like the epitome of be careful what you wish for because he wanted all this fame, but ultimately he is this shy kind of introvert who didn't really like a lot of the aspects of fame. Um, so that December George is invited to participate in, do they know it's Christmas time, a charity uh recording. We've done a <laughs> Patreon episode dissecting this song. Mm. It's uh pretty it's, funny. It's, <laughs> it's,
1: it's, I it's one of me and Desi's favorite Christmas songs. But
0: it's definitely something that has aged a little poorly yeah. as far as the lyrics go. Andrew was also invited, but he overslept the day of recording. Well, oh, really? Yeah. Andrew is a partier. Like he's like he's he's a he's <laughs> so the session though George felt kind of snubbed Aww. the musicians were uh he felt they were snubbing him that they considered wham a joke uh but he he does I did watch the video today um so he is in there a lot he's in the video a lot um but that that made me sad he does end up donating the proceeds of his next single to famine famine relief as well and it was like two hundred fifty thousand dollars. was Bono a dick to him You can imagine. I mean, who knows? I mean, maybe George is sensitive. Maybe it was. So it was. Maybe there's a little bit of both. But I can imagine Bono being a jerk. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think it's that hard stretch of an imagination. George Michael. I can see them thinking Wham is. But it's such a mixture of people. It's like Duran Duran was there. Right. Jodie Watley's in the video. Like a really young Jodie Watley. So once Christmas is over everything she wants so he also releases last christmas around the same time as do you know it's christmas do you know it's christmas is number one last christmas is number two really so he has two songs in the top you know the top two spots after christmas they release everything she wants this is a this is a huge hit it hits over one million uh singles sold and they perform it on the first top of the pops of 1985 Then they're back on tour, heading to the U.S., Australia, and Japan. Now, Andrew isn't the only one dabbling in excess at this point. George now is right there with him. He is also sleeping with everyone he can, from flight attendants to fans. And he starts, you know, getting the recognition he wants as as well.
1: Wait, Andrew is sleeping with flight attendants? No, George
0: is. He starts fucking around more and start partying more with Andrew. At this point, Andrew was sort of the main party guy. Yeah. Yeah. So George kind of joins him and it's a lot of, a lot of it is stress related. Yeah. He's starting to get stressed, but he does get um, some of the recognition he wants. Elton John, his childhood hero presents him with the songwriter of the year award for 1984 at the Brit Awards, which I I think is like the Grammys. Um, It's big. Yeah. Do you want to take a break? Sure. Okay. We'll be right back.
1: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit JDPower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or SleepNumber.com.
0: So as the tour continues, George's behavior becomes increasingly volatile. He would later say that the trigger for all of this bad behavior or like drinking and fucking around a lot was that he had recently been dumped he said that he was usually the one who left, but this affair ended because of his pop stardom. The person didn't want to deal with all of that. He said he was very messy and used poo, um, poos. <laughs> Sorry. Jesus. poos and pills. Poos should be something, though. <laughs> that is disgusting. It is. To numb the pain. He also began uh, showing a temper for the first time in his life, and that will lead to some confrontations we'll talk about in the next section. Now, Wham had something very unusual planned amidst, amidst, amidst this world tour. They were going to have a groundbreaking 10 day visit to China, the first by a Western pop group. The China excursion was a publicity scheme devised by one of their managers, Simon Napier Bell. Um, And this was going to be a concert at the People's Gymnasium in Beijing in front of 12,000 people. They also played a concert uh, for 5,000 people in Canton and According to someone on the tour, no one had ever seen anything like that before. All the young people were amazed and everybody was tapping their feet. Of course, the police weren't happy and they were scared there would be riots. So, Wham's visit to China attracted a lot of media attention. Um, Their manager later admitted that he used tactics to sabotage the efforts of Queen to be the first band to play in China. Whoa. He made two brochures for the Chinese authorities. One featured Wham! fans as pleasant middle-class youngsters, and one portraying Queen lead singer Freddie Mercury in his flamboyant poses. And the Chinese picked Wham! They didn't see the Wake Me Up Before You Go. (laughs) (laughs) He didn't use that (laughs) in the publicity <laughs> <laughs> so they also had a director named Lindsay Anderson there to film this concert tour. He was going to make a documentary about the visit. He called this film um, If You Were There. In the final stages of editing, though, he got fired and Wham's management um, the editing team quit as well. The film was re-edited. They uh released it eventually under Wham in China Foreign Skies. Now, the reasoning behind this is that I think they wanted to make more of an MTV-type documentary. And the director was obviously trying to make a more powerful statement about the Western world making inroads into China. Um, So some people... Uh, on the wham team we're like this film was dreadful it's rubbish um it's boring why would why would we ever show it but some people finally saw it in 2008 including critic and journalist john harris and he described it as a rich poetic panoramic portrait of china's strangest strangeness to the eyes of outsiders so who knows what the truth is but this was a pretty big deal um them going i love that wham (laughs) (laughs) is what the first Westerners, (laughs) the Chinese (laughs) people. Yeah, it's like, that's pop music. So cracks were also beginning to appear in Wham's armor. George became increasingly eager to be seen as an independent artist, not part of the Wham machine. He was kind of performing more and more, taking on more appearances as a solo person. Like he... Did an, a Motown anniversary where he sang with Stevie Wonder and uh, Smokey Robinson. He was introduced at this event by Bill Cosby. Oh my God! <laughs> it's like you can't even talk about a story from the '80s and there's like so many like awful people, right? right? <laughs> like referenced. Uh, and then he also did Live Aid. So Michael appeared with uh, Andrew on stage at Live Aid, which happened in July of 1985. He saying, Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me with Elton John. Now, I watched this today. <laughs> this is like, God bless Andrew Ridgely. Elton John basically enters, uh, like introduces George Michael. He comes on stage and Andrew pops out <laughs> after him. And, and Elton John is literally like, oh, and Andrew Ridgely. <laughs> Then Andrew goes behind the piano to where the background singers are. Oh and it's God. like him standing next to Kiki D, who had just sang Don't Go in My Heart with Elton John, and then went back to the background. So he's next to Kiki D in the background <laughs> in his like plaid suit. And George is singing with Elton. Like he sings the whole song while Elton accompanies him on piano. Uh this is another performance that really elevated his status as like an, a real performer and artist. Uh, he's very critical of his performance, saying he was off key the first few bars. That's not true. He definitely is nervous, and he picks up steam. I feel like that's pretty typical. I love these. I we had the live eight on uh, VHS, I believe,
1: when I was a kid. I loved these performances. Me too. I love They're them. so
0: good. So the performance is uh, well received and. Like I said, Andrew is just the best sport of all time. He literally is just happy to be there. And it's like, honestly, it looks pretty cool. Yeah. (laughs) Like you have none of the pressure and you just get to show up at these cool things. They continue to tour North America and George starts rocking a new look. This is sort of the origins of his solo career look, including the famous stubble. Like this is where he first kind of sports the stubble. He also experiences some rumors in the U.S. that he is having a romance with actress Brooke Shields. But there's nothing to to that. They do uh, meet at some point on tour, but that's all it is. Um, But they're starting to become some wear and tear on the tour as well, especially amongst the crew. They're kind of like, our accommodations, yeah, they're supposed to be less than Andrew and George, but they're like a little too less. Like it's a little too disparate. Um, So they start... Quitting. Some crew members quit. Quit. George's temper, as I said, is really getting out of control. When they return to London, he gets into a fist fight with David Austin outside of a nightclub. Days later, he shoves a paparazzi outside of another club, and the highs of fame are no longer sustaining him. He is miserable. Uh, soon after these incidents, he calls a meeting with Andrew and the management team, saying he wants out of Wham, and the party is over. So he's tired of pretending to be this George Michael character that he created, he's like, I cannot do another album of Wham material. At the age of 22, Andrew and George had accomplished everything and more that they had ever dreamed of as schoolchildren. George had gone from unattractive teen to international sex symbol, but the fame was empty for him, and he had begun to rely more and more on drugs and alcohol, including ecstasy, which he says was one of the worst things he could have taken when he was so severely depressed, like according to him, it just made things way worse. They decided to hold off on announcing that the band was breaking up and they started making plans to sort of go out on top. They recorded another single. I'm your man. Later in 1985, Andrew and George go on holiday to Australia and our tabloid fodder, fodder from the moment they land. Andrew is dubbed Randy Andy. (laughs) (laughs) And, the vomit fountain. What? Oh no. I'm guessing he's grown <laughs> up a drunk. lot. <laughs> he's the drunk. vomit fountain. Now, still, George and his conquest are kept private. They never sell their stories to the press. Like, they don't, the tabloids don't get anything on him as far as who is he. he's, he's fucking. But one story that does make the headlines uh, that leads to questions about his sexuality is he is caught in a nightclub taking poppers which oh. is uh popular amongst gay men. So that's people are like, "Hmm, what's that about?" And George um starts having paparazzi sort of let them snap pictures of him with various women. He doesn't want this speculation about his sexuality to continue. So, by the time 1986 rolls around, rumors of Whims breakup began surfacing. George is doing a lot more solo things, as I mentioned before, and that, that keeps increasing. And Andrew had begun a relationship with Karen Woodward of Banana Rama. So they're off together and he, he takes up his hobby of car racing, like almost full time. So they're, they're kind of in Monaco. Um, So no one knows at this point that their final show is being planned for just a few months away. Uh, George and Andrew finally announced the breakup of O.A.M. in the spring of 1986 Before going their separate ways, they have a farewell single, The Edge of Heaven, which is one of their most horny songs. It has heavy breathing and S&M laced lyrics. Mm. Very horny. And they're planning a greatest hits album called The Final, which will um, coincide with a farewell concert, also entitled The Final. After this breakup is announced, Michael says, I think it should be the most amicable split in pop history. Now this final concert takes place at London's Wembley stadium on June 28th, 1986. They bid goodbye to their fans and they have a really emotional embrace at the end of this concert. Cause it's kind of like the end of an era too. They remain friends obviously, but it's the end of this, this portion 72,000 people attend this eight hour event. Whoa. So obviously they have a lot of supporting artists there. It is a scorching hot day in London It's a big thing. Now, they had been together at that point as Wham for five years. They sold over 28 million records, 15 million singles, and George puts it best saying, How can you end Wham any more perfectly than in front of 72,000 people, still good friends, with a record at number one? Now, almost immediately after wrapping up Wham, Andrew, as I said, is back in Monaco to pursue car racing, and George is hit with what you know this reality that he is now alone in the music world um though he had been the talent behind wham he wouldn't have gotten to where he was without andrew being this constant support boosting his self-esteem george spoke to the press non-stop about the importance of ridgely in this whole thing like he was ridgely's greatest defender um as i mentioned earlier like Andrew was constantly dunked on a lot. And George basically gave him full credit for being the driving force, saying the luckiest moment of his life was when he met Andrew. (laughs) You know, that's where I got choked up. And in hindsight, it almost seems like some part of this master plan. No one he had ever met in his life could have ever filled the role um, of booster like Andrew had. And in George's mind, he was irreplaceable. Just like... That's so sweet. it, It is sort of interesting how all of the emphasis was placed on the talent, but it's like, there are so many moving elements of what makes something successful. Right. And for someone like George, if he didn't have Andrew, he never would have had the confidence to pursue this. Like, right. Uh, so it really is true. So um, his confidence really took a dive without Andrew, even though this was what he wanted. He was still suffering in silence regarding that relationship that hended, ended. He's never revealed who that person was, by the way. Um, he would later tell the daily mail "Wham we're dead, but my problems hadn't disappeared with the band's demise. Andrew and I were still good friends, but broken relationships about of heavy boozing and a fair bit of drugs, um, hadn't made my life any easier somewhere along the line. I had to make a radical change. He set a new goal for himself. He wanted to be on the level of Michael Jackson and Madonna, uh, with almost no post break after the, the Wham breakup. Um, George began working on the songs that would eventually become his 1987 smash debut solo album faith. And that would put him into the stratosphere of music stardom, just like he kind of wanted. So next week we will get into his legal troubles. As I said earlier, I really wanted to establish where he was coming from, explain his struggles, um, post wham. And we have a lot of great picks. I'll send to Rachel from the book and there's more she can post as well. So, We'll get some of those up on Instagram and we will be back next week with part two. Great episode, Desi. I love him. I love him so much.
1: (laughs) We're going to record our after show now, which is available at the $5 tier on our Patreon. So come find us there. Bye. Bye.